Well, last week we began the journey toward the cross in the last three chapters of the book of Matthew. And today we will pick up where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 26, starting with verse 17, going through verse 29. And as you'll see in a moment, uh, this is the time in the upper room when Jesus inaugurates the Lord's Supper and gives us the meal that we partook of last week uh, and that we will continue to partake of until he returns again. So that can be found on page number 989 of the Pew Bibles, Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, One after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are thankful for the supper that you have provided for us. We're thankful for the sign that it is of your broken body and your poured out blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray this morning, God, that you would assure us of your love for us this morning. You would assure us of our faith in you and you alone for the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of our souls, God. May we be moved to worship you and to depend on you and to look to you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I knew a a man and a guy in college, uh, and one of the things that was interesting about our relationship is uh, he would always talk about how he wasn't sure if he was a Christian. He lacked the assurance of salvation. And I remember telling him, well, you must be a Christian because somebody who wasn't a Christian wouldn't even be concerned whether they were a Christian or not. And now here, 
uh, 20 plus years later, uh, he is not a Christian. Looking back now, I realize I gave him false assurance because I pointed him back to himself and his thoughts and his feelings and his experience instead of pointing him to Christ and the promises of God in Christ. In our passage this morning, the disciples are about to go through one of the most difficult trials of their life as Judas, one of the 12, will betray Jesus. Soon after, they will all deny him. Jesus will be arrested, tried, and crucified. Their assurance is going to be shaken. But before all that happens, Jesus is going to show them and us where to look for our assurance when we experience fear and doubt that we may know that we can look to him through all the trials in our life. We can look to him in spite of the sin in our hearts. We can look to him and him alone. Here's our outline this morning. First, Uh, We're going to see Jesus making preparations. Next, he's going to make all the disciples and us a little uncomfortable by inserting doubt, only to establish assurance with us through the Lord's Supper. So first, making preparations. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are observant Jews who've all traveled uh, to Jerusalem for the Passover They're not alone. Jerusalem at this time is filled with travelers who've all come to this place and they all anticipate uh, participating and experiencing the Passover meal together in Jerusalem. And like most events like this, if you fail to make reservations before you go, chances are it's very difficult to find accommodations once you're there, especially the day of, unless of course you are the son of God, uh, as we'll see. Matthew clues us into the fact that they didn't yet have plans for this night by putting a question into the mouths of the disciples in verse 17. We read, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Uh, The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week-long feast that began on Passover and then lasted for seven days. Technically, uh, the first day of Unleavened Bread would have been Thursday evening when Passover began. Now, this is obviously happening Thursday morning because Passover hasn't started yet. And the reason Matthew calls it the first day of Unleavened Bread is because the Jews considered the first day of Unleavened Bread to be the day of preparation for Passover, even though it wasn't technically the first day of the feast yet. Now, some of you may be wondering, what is the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Well, leaven, of course, is what we put into bread to make it rise. Uh, Most of us think of it as yeast. And without leaven, bread comes out flat. But it only takes a very small amount of leaven to spread throughout the entire batch of dough to make bread rise. And in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, leaven is a symbol for sin. The Passover, which begins the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread, reminded the Jews of God saving them from slavery in Egypt 
And the Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds them how they are to respond to that salvation, which is by removing the leaven of sin from their lives. And the idea is just like it only takes a small amount of leaven to spread throughout a whole batch of dough to make a very big difference. It only takes a small amount of sin to spread in our hearts and through our community to make a huge difference as well. And so with that in mind, I'd like to read a verse that I read for us last week from 1 Corinthians 5. Paul writes, and he says this, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been crucified. Let us therefore celebrate the festival or the feast of unleavened bread, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And you see how Paul is just assuming that we understand the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread when he writes this. So for seven days, the Israelites were supposed to completely remove all of the leaven from their lives. They couldn't even have it in their house. And so the day of preparation or the first day of unleavened bread was spent getting all of the leaven out of your house. It was also spent making sure that your lamb was slaughtered for the Passover that night and making sure you had unleavened bread to eat and wine and bitter herbs to go with the meal. So Jesus tells them, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Matthew is clearly condensing the story here. Uh, When Mark and Luke tell this story, Jesus sends two disciples, Peter and John, and he tells them to go into the city and to find a man carrying the water or carrying a pitcher of water. And that would have stood out because at this time, typically it was only women who went and got pitchers of water and carried it. And they were supposed to follow that man into the house that he went into and then go into that house and tell them that Jesus intends to have the Passover meal at their house that night. Now, it could be that Jesus has prearranged all of this. However, if he did, surely the disciples would already know whose house they were going to and where they were going to eat the meal that night, including Judas who just happened to be looking for a place to portray Jesus away from the crowds anyway. So it seems more likely that this is supernatural, especially if Jesus is trying to keep Judas in the dark for the moment. Plus, this scene has the feel of Obi-Wan Kenobi talking to the stormtroopers as they're coming into Mos Eisley saying, these are not the droids you're looking for. It's like the power and the will of God are with Peter and John when they say, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your home with my disciples. And the man hearing those words must yield whatever his plans were otherwise. It's as if when Peter and John speak these words, Jesus is creating the reality of a free room in a packed and busy city, the day of Passover. Also notice Jesus says, my time is at hand. Again, he is in complete control of the timing. He knows he's about to go to the cross. He's arranging all of these events. He knows he's about to suffer and die for the sins of his people. He knows he's about to redeem us from slavery to sin and death. But before he does, he will have one last Passover 
the last Passover with his disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. They prepared the Passover. Peter and John, they go and they secure the room, which would have included preparing the room. Uh, They would have obtained the lamb or got the lamb, made sure it was slaughtered, got the bread, got the wine, got the herbs. And then they all gather for the meal where Jesus is going to warn Judas. And at the same time, he's going to insert doubt for a moment into everyone else. So the Passover meal was eaten in stages. Uh, Each aspect of the meal was connected to some part of the story of God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. And it was the head of the home, the father who would preside over the meal. And at each stage in the meal, he would explain the symbolism of the Passover. It would be like having a seven course meal that began with a story and an explanation before each course. Matthew picks up the story while Jesus and his disciples are already eating. And we read this. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, two things to keep in mind here. First, uh, the disciples know that Jesus cannot lie. And so when he says, one of you will betray me, this, this would have landed like a thud in the room because they all would have known that it was true. The other thing to keep in mind is it was only the 12 in this room. These are Jesus's closest companions. These are the men who Jesus has been with every day for three years. They've gone through everything together, all the teaching, all the healing, all the miracles, all the crowds, all the opposition from the Pharisees and from the scribes. They were the ones who went out together, including Judas, to preach the good news of the kingdom and to heal and to cast out demons. They laughed together, they ate together, they lived together with the sinless son of God. They would have had the deepest friendships, profound trust with each other. So usually in a group like this, when everybody finds out that one of them is a rat, how do, how, do, how do we respond most of the time in a situation like that? Most of us would defend ourselves, right? It's not me. <laughs> no way. I have no intention of betraying you. I've, it wasn't even in my mind. In fact, <laughs> that guy James over there, always thought he was kind of fake. We deny, we point fingers, but that's not how they respond. Instead, they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? So they're sorrowful, which is a word that means deeply distressed and full of grief. And their first reaction is not to defend themselves, not to point fingers. Their first response is to fear that it could be them. Of all the people in that room, they're afraid that they're the one who is most likely to betray Jesus. 
Isn't that amazing? The New Testament is full of warnings about the possibility of falling away from Jesus into sin and unbelief. Jesus has said things like this throughout the book of Matthew, back in chapter seven, during the Sermon on the Mount, he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Many of his parables are about the reality that it's possible to be associated with God's people, to believe we're one of God's people and to not truly be saved. This is the parable of the sower. Some hear the word, they receive it with joy, but there's no root. Others begin to sprout, but it's choked out by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Don't forget the parable of the man who shows up at the wedding feast without the proper garments. He wants to be there, but he's not covered in the righteousness of Christ. Then there's the parables that we just went through in chapters 24 and 25 of the faithful servant, the 10 virgins, the talents, the sheep and the goats. All these parables have at least someone who is part of the people of God who falls away. Because they did not have true faith, they were not trusting in Christ alone to forgive them of their sins and to produce fruit and to faithfully endure the trials of this life until we die or Jesus returns. Outside of Matthew, the rest of the New Testament is also filled with warnings. In Ephesians, Paul writes this, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you, Christian, with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So Paul is warning the church He's warning Christians. He wants Christians to know it's possible to deceive ourselves. It's possible to think we're Christians when we really love our sin more than Christ. And then here's the scariest warning in all of scripture, I think, from Hebrews. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So at one point in time, they repented. They were once enlightened. They heard the good news of the kingdom and received it with joy. They tasted the heavenly gift, probably a reference to baptism and the Lord's Supper. They felt the spirit during worship as they raised their hands. They enjoyed hearing and receiving the word of God preached, but they fell away. Just like Judas casting out demons and healing and yet betraying the Son of God. So let's be honest. 
These warnings are very uncomfortable. We don't like them. They make us afraid. Maybe for ourselves. Our loved ones, especially our loved ones who are not walking with God. And that is their purpose. But how do we square these warnings with the promises in Scripture that no one can snatch us out of His hand and that nothing can separate us from His love and that He will keep us from stumbling? These threats and warnings make us feel like the disciples must have felt when Jesus told them that one of them will betray him. And here's the invitation. The invitation is for us to respond to these threats the same way the disciples did. Is it I, Lord? Am I the man who will hear you tell me, depart from me, I never knew you? Am I the one who will receive the news with joy without it taking root in my life, Jesus? Am I the unfaithful servant? Am I a foolish virgin? Am I the man burying my talents? Am I a goat who thinks he's a sheep? Am I deceiving myself, Lord? Am I the one who tasted the heavenly gift but falls away? Is it I, Lord? The disciples knew they could betray him. They knew they could fall away. Just think about the pressure on them in this moment. The religious leaders are are caving in on them. They're in Jerusalem. Which is why they don't deny it or defend themselves or point fingers. And in so doing, they show us how true believers respond to the threat of being the one who could betray Jesus with distress and grief and with the knowledge that left to ourselves, we could fall away. But at the same time, they don't want to. When they say, is it I, Lord? You could almost hear them saying, please don't let it be me, Jesus which is the exact opposite of how Judas responds. So Jesus is not going to comfort them right away because he doesn't want to give Judas false hope. Instead, he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And this is actually not a comforting answer because they were all dipping their hand in the dish. It was a, it was a communal dish that you would dip your bread into. Now, when John tells the story, he tells it in such a way that we know Judas knows it's, it's him. While the rest of the disciples are still unaware of who betrays him. And so Jesus is doing two things at once here. He's keeping the disciples in suspense for the moment. He leaves them doubting themselves. But he wants Judas to know that he knows that it's him. 
And you can almost picture Jesus looking right at Judas when he says, the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So the son of man goes as it is written of him. The scriptures will be fulfilled. The Old Testament sacrificial system pointing to the death of Christ will be fulfilled with Christ's sacrifice. Isaiah 53 was already written at this point. It will not change. The suffering servant will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The Lord will lay on him the iniquity of us all. His wounds will heal us. Daniel 9 will be fulfilled, which tells us that the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. He will be surrounded by dogs with his hands and feet pierced, as Psalm 22 tells us. And Psalm 41.9 is being fulfilled this very moment, which says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. God's word is unchanging. And at the same time, the one who betrays him is responsible and he will be judged with a judgment so terrible that it would be better if he had not been born. Can you imagine being Judas in this moment with 30 pieces of silver burning a hole in your pocket, hearing these words? With Jesus maybe looking him right in the eye as he says it? This warning should have caused Judas to say, it's me. It's me, Jesus. I'm so sorry. Here's, I took the money. I, I don't know what I was thinking. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. I would never betray you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Because these warnings are meant to cause the true believer to turn from sin and to turn to Jesus for more mercy and more grace and more forgiveness. Even though it is written, even though God's word cannot fail and cannot change, Jesus is giving Judas a free creature with free will. He's giving him a chance to come clean. But instead, Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said to him, you have said so. So instead of coming clean, Judas just pretends to be one of the rest of the disciples, but he can't even choke out the word Lord. Judas still thinks of Jesus as merely a rabbi. And then when Jesus says, you have said so, that means something along the lines of, you said it, not me, which is kind of a way of affirming what Judas is saying without really affirming it. So here's the question. If even Judas can fall away, how can we have assurance? Which takes us to our last point, giving assurance. One of the main doctrines that separates the reformed churches like ours from other traditions, especially the Catholic church, is that our emphasis is on assurance of salvation. Our tradition leans into the promises of God that no one can snatch us from Jesus's hand and that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. There was a time early in my Christianity 
where I had really hurt somebody. And I remember that man looking me in the eye after I had done something so awful. And I remember him telling me, Patrick, I believe that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And I remember 10 years later finding him on Facebook and with tears streaming down my face, writing him a message and just saying, that meant the world to me. Those words changed my life. But the question always is, how can I personally know that I'm someone who will never be snatched out of Jesus's hand? How can I know that nothing will ever separate me from Jesus's love? And ironically, we must begin where the disciples are at in this passage by knowing that we could fall away. By knowing and believing ourselves to be the greatest sinner we know. And the reason it's so important is so that we will never base our assurance on anything in ourselves. The reason this is so important is so that we know ourselves and doubt ourselves and take the threat of falling away seriously so that we lean into Christ for confidence, to him and to his promises, If we build our assurance of our salvation on anything else, we'll despair and doubt forever or we'll deceive ourselves with false assurance. Assurance is a paradox. It's a gift from the Holy Spirit given to to believers who look to Christ alone, who know themselves to be weak and feeble and incapable who know themselves to be full of sin, who know themselves to, the only thing I'm bringing to this equation, Jesus, is my sin that must be forgiven. So after Judas leaves, Jesus turns to his disciples to comfort them, to assure them and us by providing a meal that will continue to comfort and assure us until we die or Jesus returns again. Here's what we read. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This part, at this point, Jesus departs from the standard Passover liturgy. The Passover has served its purpose, pointing forward to the sacrifice of Christ. And now he's giving the church a new sign, pointing backwards to what he has done to save us from our sins. The bread is his body in the same way that Jesus is the vine or Jesus is the door or the rock or the bright morning star. When he institutes this meal, he's standing right there in his body. So clearly this is not literally his body. The bread is a sign pointing to the fact that his body is broken in our place. And that if we simply believe that, we are his.
and the wine inside the cup as a sign pointing to the fact that his blood was poured out in our place. Just like the blood of the lamb covered the sin of the Israelites on the night of the first Passover, now Jesus's blood covers our sin forever. This is a sign pointing to a new and better covenant than the covenant Passover was pointing to. A covenant with better promises. A covenant is a relationship built on promises. God promises to be our God and we promise to live as his people. And when God establishes the old covenant with Israel, here's what we read. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the old covenant was gracious because it was established with Israel after God had graciously rescued them from Israel in it and through the sacrificial system, God provided a way that sinners could seek and receive forgiveness. The blood of the covenant reminded them that forgiveness of sin required blood because someone could be their substitute. God is holy, sin must be punished. The old covenant also included promises of blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience. And as we just read, the people promised to be obedient, but they weren't. And no matter how much blood you have from bulls or goats, it can never really deal with sin and guilt. So the Old Testament left you with this question of how, how God? And so God promised that he would establish a new covenant. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Here's where assurance comes from. It starts by knowing that left to ourselves, we would fall away. We would choose our sin over God, which forces us to look somewhere besides ourselves. And the bread and the wine invite us to look to Christ and to this new covenant in his blood. That in his death and through his death, our sins are fully and finally forgiven. That God will remember them no more, but it's even better than that. In his death and through his death, we can truly come to know God. Just like the disciples who walked with Jesus every day for three years, knew him, we can know God intimately and personally. But it's even better than that. In his death and through his death, he writes his law on our hearts. Here's how Ezekiel puts it. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So in the new covenant, God promises to be our God and we promise to live as his children, but he keeps that promise for us by causing us to keep that promise. In the new covenant, we can keep our promise because he is causing us to walk in his ways and to keep his rules. These are the new and better promises of the new covenant, forgiveness of sins, a new heart, assurance that we cannot save ourselves, but that we can trust in him. We have a savior who can and will and has fully and finally and completely saved us from our sins. And we can trust in him alone because we see our all-powerful, all-knowing savior choosing the cross in our place and then giving us a meal to feed our faith. And when we eat this meal with faith, in remembrance of Jesus, we are assured of all these many great promises. Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? We are so united to Christ. We are so one with him. We are so assured of his love and our salvation that when we partake of this bread and wine, It's pointing to the fact that we participate in Christ. Our hope is secure. So if I could go back 20 years and have that conversation over again with my college friend, I would tell him honestly, if he doubts his salvation, That's probably because he's not looking at the right thing. And that he should be asking, is it I, Lord, pleading with Jesus that it would not be him? And as difficult as this is to say, the reason doubting is necessary sometimes is because through it, we learn not to put any confidence in ourselves. We have to doubt ourselves if we're gonna learn to put our confidence in Christ. And we hate to doubt ourselves. We want to do it on our own. From the moment, we know this with our children, from the moment they can speak, they're telling us, no, daddy, I do it. We are so prone to trust in ourselves and we need that purged out of us. So I would tell him the only way he will ever be assured of his salvation is if he stops looking at himself and his feelings and his thoughts and what he thinks he believes and his sin and to look to Christ alone. Believe that Christ will forgive any and all sin. Believe that Christ will give you a new heart with new desires and new affections because he promises he will. Believe that God promises that by Christ and his Holy Spirit, he will assure you of eternal life. 
and he will make you wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live from him, for him. And then I would encourage him to put to death his sin and wrestle with God and never let him go until he blesses you with faith and his many great promises. Never let him go until he makes you believe nothing can separate you from his love. And then join a church where you can be reminded over and over again of your weakness while at the same time being fed by the ministry of the word and by the bread and the wine that give us assurance and faith. This is why it's so essential to be immersed in a Christian community because we need the means of grace, but we also need each other. That's why when Corey prayed earlier about hospitality, right? We need each other. We need to know each other. We need to be with each other. Because this life is full of trials and tribulations. We will experience doubt and fear where God is purging us of our dependence on ourselves. And we need to constantly be reminded over and over again of his goodness and his grace and his mercy to sinners who will come to him saying, is it I, Lord? only to hear, I have died in your place. Yes, it's you, but I have paid the price. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, grateful, grateful for your mercy and your promises, grateful that we don't have to trust in ourselves, that we can actually get the gaze off of ourselves and our feelings and our thoughts and swirling inside our own heart. What an what a exhausting experience, God. Thank you that you invite us to lift up our gaze to heaven, to look to Christ, to look to your, you and your promises, to trust in you alone, to bask in your greatness and your glory, to love you, to be filled with your glory, God, which we see shining through your word. God, may we be those, God, who take one look at ourselves, but, all, but 10 looks at you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.